1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Celeste Ding, on her new novel, Our Missing Hearts. Celeste Ng is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Everything I Never Told You and Little Fires Everywhere. She is the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation, and her work has been published in over 30 languages. And today we're going to be talking about Celeste's new novel, which is Our Missing Hearts. Celeste, welcome back to Little Atoms.
2: Neil, thank you so much for having me on again. Tell us first of all, how
1: you would describe this novel then?
2: I explain it as being really a story about a mother and son. There is Bird, who is a 12-year-old boy, and his mother, Margaret, who is a Chinese-American poet. And they're living in a world that's really full of fear. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Asian sentiment, and the authorities can take away the children of anyone they think is acting un-American, which is, is often applied to uh, people of Asian descent or anybody who kind of speaks up for them. And so at the beginning of the book, Margaret has left the family and Bird doesn't really know where she's gone or why. And uh, he gets a mysterious letter from her and that sort of starts him off on a quest to find her and understand why she left the family.
1: So I want to talk about the three main characters, both Bird and Bird's father and yes. then Margaret. The book is the book's told in the third person, but for the first section of the book, it's mostly from Bird's perspective. And um, we only find out his father's name halfway through the novel. And, and Margaret only appears as her own character, not seen through Bird's eyes halfway through the book as well. Mm-hmm. And so as we talk about these three characters, I'm aware that we'll probably need to be careful about, you know, some things we don't want to give away, obviously, about the story. But having said that, tell us, first of all, something more about Bird then. Who is he when we meet him at the, at the beginning of the story?
2: Yeah, so Bird is a is a twelve year old. Uh, his father is is white, and his mother is a Chinese American. And he's kind of quiet and bookish, but he's learned in some ways to uh, to not ask too many questions. Uh, whenever he asks about his mother, his father kind of shuts those questions down, tells him not to talk about his mother. And um, he's at that point in a, a child's life where I think we often start to become aware of the larger world outside of just our home and our nuclear family, and we start to become aware that oh, there's. There's history out there that we haven't learned, and there's rules out there that I maybe haven't seen, and there's more to the world and to my parents than I maybe initially thought there was. So exactly what you point out, we sort of follow Bird's gradual awakening to the world around him, but also to the fact that his parents have lived lives before him and that there are things about them that he doesn't know. We kind of go with him on that path of discovery.
1: And his father, who, well, I'm not even going to say his name because we don't find out his name until the the sort of midpoint of the book. But tell us something about who he is or where he finds himself at the beginning of the novel.
2: Yeah, Bird's father uh, has been raising Bird, his son, on his own for some time. And uh, he works at the library of the university in their town. He reshelves the books and uh, he used to be a professor. And now he's, he's sort of moved down, down as Bird sees it anyway, to just working at the library. And he's, he's a little bit alone in the world and he's really trying very hard, I think, to protect Bird to shield him from understanding some of the hard truths about the world that he lives in but he's still at the same time i think trying to keep alive in bird a little spark of interest in the world he's he's kind of a word nerd and so he's always telling bird you know the stories of words and where they come from he's always talking to him about what words mean and at the beginning he's a little bit of a puzzle to bird and throughout the novel, he's tries to understand his father a little bit better as well.
1: And he seems to us in the first part of the book to be very strict, but also quite beaten down by the situation.
2: Yeah, he's really kind of got his head down. He's kind of just like, we are just going to do what we need to, to get through this situation, you know, sort of for long as it as long as it takes. And, you know, we as readers, I think, get the sense that there is more to his story, right? There's a reason that he is how he is. And, um, you know, we start to learn that as the book goes. But for Bird, He's a little bit uh, maybe of a repressive figure. His father just doesn't he's like, go to school, come straight home. Don't ask any questions. Don't get into trouble. You know, his father is kind of laying out these rules of order from him that Bird is is starting to begin to challenge.
1: And so Margaret, the mother, tell us what you can about her. I appreciate this is going to be quite...
2: Yeah. Difficult well, to
1: say much about her. We
2: won't give much away. But um, so Margaret is, is Bird's mother. Um, she's a Chinese-American woman and she's a poet. She was a poet. And uh, at the beginning of the book, Bird doesn't know very much about her work. Um, and so, again, without giving too much away, we learn that she's disappeared in part because of the policies that the government has put into place about anyone who's un-American, again, with you know, quite heavy irony quotes around it. Anyone who's interpreted as being un-American can be punished by having their children taken away. And so we have the sense, as Bird does, that she's left him in some way because of this, that she's been deemed one of the the troublemakers. And that's one of the reasons that he doesn't know much about her and that he's he's been told not to talk very much about her. There's the sense that she's she's some kind of troublemaking figure. And he's meant to keep away from that. But of course, I don't think it gives much away to say that he learns that the truth is is quite a bit more complicated than that.
1: So we'll talk particularly about the law, the act that's been enacted in a moment. But first of all, the reason for that is that there has been a thing described in the book as the crisis, mm-hmm. um, which you're relatively vague about. But well, let's talk about what has happened as much as we can. You know, why does America find itself in this particular situation at this time.
2: Yeah, the crisis in, in this story is, uh, I think, sort of a, a version of, of many of the things that we've experienced in America and elsewhere, of course, sort of an economic crisis that leads to all of the sort of social problems that, that often come up um, with increased homelessness or people, you know, not being able to afford gas or labor strikes or things like that. But with the volume sort of turned up quite a bit, it's the sort of thing that That I think often leads people to start looking for, you know, why did this happen, and who's to blame? In particular, Um, that's the impulse of this particular crisis, as they call it, is is people start to need someone to blame, and in the novel, that ends up being China for the most part. Um, It's something that in real life, we're starting to see over here um, in, a, in a slightly frightening way that a lot of things get blamed on you know countries overseas. And right now that country happens to be China. Um, so that's, that's the impulse in the novel.
1: So this law, which is the PACT law, it's Preserving American Culture and Traditions Act. But of course, inescapably, of course, PACT also was immediately redolent of the Patriot Act for me. You know, it could also stand for that. And it's obviously... Yeah something that's influenced it. Tell us about what this law is in the world of the novel and what it means.
2: Yeah, in the world of the novel, as they call it, the Protecting American Culture and Traditions Act um, is a broad sort of thing. It suggests that everybody needs to be on the lookout for anyone else who's not acting patriotically. Um, It's a little, again, a sort of an enhanced version Of the, if you see something, say something laws that we, or guidelines that we've had here. It also suggests that people need to avoid doing things that could be seen as being unpatriotic or sort of like anti American in any way. And finally, it gives as a sort of cudgel. It gives the authorities the ability to remove the children from the homes of dissidents under, you know, the the idea that this will protect the children. That children should not be exposed to un-American views. Um, almost that's sort of a harmful environment for them, as we might think of, uh, you know, a physically abusive one. Is this is one that they need to be protected from?
1: And what has this act then done to so the world that we find Bird living in? the crisis is seemingly what was called the crisis is seemingly over so what does the they they are living in cambridge at the in cambridge massachusetts at the start of the novel so what does the uh the Cambridge of the post-crisis look like.
2: Yeah, the world of Pact at the time that the book opens, Pact has been the law for more than a decade, and so it's it's basically all that Bird and the other children of his generation know. It's really become a world that's very fearful. It's a world in which people keep to themselves. A world in which people feel sort of constantly surveilled, and a world in which you don't always know who you can trust. Um, there's the idea that if other people are reporting on what they see as possible un-American behavior, that might be you. It's also a world in which books and uh, any kind of artwork, really, any kind of statements that might be seen as being anti-American or being inflammatory in any way are being removed from libraries and from schools. It's a time where in order to avoid running afoul of this law, many of the libraries and the schools have simply chosen to remove those books and avoid that entire conversation. And so a whole generation of children, including Bird, have grown up really not knowing anything about much of their history, not knowing anything about China or about many parts of American history and culture, because there's a fear it might be seen as, as unpatriotic.
1: And so the book looks at, racism and you know obviously America is a, is a country as is Britain of course we always have to say that with a you know a long history of anti black racism obviously you mentioned in the book you refer back in the book to the um, anti muslim american racism okay. after um after 911 and actually also the racism between asian americans and the black community uh, you discuss as well. But you know, fundamentally, the focus of the book is on anti Asian racism, which is something that we have seen. I mean, there's again, there's a, you know, long and storied history throughout America, from the uh, the anti Chinese acts in, the, um, in mm-hmm. the early 20th century to obviously the, uh, the internment camps. But most recently, we've seen it rising because of the pandemic. Haven't
2: we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was something that I hesitated to write about, just because it felt very close to home. It's something that I, I've grown up being aware of. And I wasn't sure that I knew how to write about it in fiction. Sometimes it's hard to write about things that, that feel very close. But when the pandemic happened and when there was a very sharp rise in anti-Asian, anti-Asian American attacks in the United States, it suddenly felt very pressing to actually talk about this and to say that this is a thing that happens and that it, without making comparisons, it is it has resonances to many other kinds of discrimination. And to me, that's it's all part of the same problem of, as you said, sort of a racism, of nationalism, of trying to exclude certain groups from what it is to be American. And uh, when I started thinking about the book in that terms, this novel that I've been struggling with for some time finally started to to come together.
1: Hey, everyone. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Celestine and we're talking about her latest novel, Our Missing Hearts. And Celeste, central to Pact, this law that has been enacted for the last decade of the novel, is the separation, the threat of the separation of children from their parents for any sort of vague infringement of the act. This is something that, again, people in the novel to begin with, seem to think is only happening in extreme cases, but we we grow to learn that that is not actually the case. I wanted to talk about this act of the political separation of children from their parents, because again, this is something that is very common both throughout American history, but again, through the British Empire, we see it in Canada, in Australia as well, where, you know, indigenous children are separated from their parents to, you know, in quote civilize them.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that this is, it's not a new thing. I mean, here in the US, a lot of people have only started thinking about it because of the separations at the US-Mexico border. But the truth is, it's been a long part of our history and history elsewhere, as you point out, um, the separation of Indigenous families in Canada. And in Australia, for me, that idea really came from a very personal place that uh, I am a parent and, you know, thinking about what is the scariest thing that could happen? What is the one thing that maybe could happen that might get me to, you know, not stand up for my principles in other ways that I I would choose to. What's the the most terrifying cudgel that someone could hold over my head? For me, that is the idea that I might endanger my child, or that my child might be taken away. And that was a, an original conception of the book from pretty early days on. And it was terrifying to see it up front in, in the news in reality when we were talking about the separations of migrant families. But I remembered at a certain point in high school and university learning outside of the you know, the formal schooling that I was having about the boarding schools, as as they were called here, where in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, for example, uh, Native American children were separated from their families with horrible, horrible outcomes. And then, of course, we see what's happening in Canada as the nation tries to reckon with that. I realized there was a really long history of that in many contexts, going back to the separation of the enslaved families, the United States and elsewhere. And going even into more recent times, looking at the foster care system, um, there's a lot of inequities that are built in there. And it's questionable uh, how much that's benefiting people. And so I wanted to acknowledge all of that and kind of get people to think about much as, as happens in the book. Maybe it's not happening in extreme cases. Maybe it's happening much more than we realized. And if we know that fact, what are we going to do about it?
1: And let's just talk about one other way of talking about the, you know, the I guess the hard politics of the of the novel. And I wanted to move on to a few lighter things after that. But um, a lot of the things we've been talking about are examples of the things that happened happen in the novel from the past. You know, the separation of children, mm-hmm. um, you know, internment camps. But this is a novel that's a, a speculative fiction. It's set slightly in the future, and and I wanted to talk about this as. The novel as a warning for America's future, both with, you know, the rise of the uh, continued rise of the far right in politics in America, but also just thinking about things like climate change in the future as well, and how the country might react to that.
2: Yeah, I started writing the novel thinking, well, the the real world that I'm living in feels almost like we're living in a dystopia as, as we were living through the Trump presidency and everything that came with that and the rise of the far right. And so it started to bleed its way into the book. And I thought, well, let me imagine something that's even farther than where we are. And in the time since I started writing the book, in some ways, reality has started to curve towards that. And I do think that it's, it's not necessarily a warning, but it's an opportunity to sort of pause and think, are we going to end up here? And if we don't want to end up there, what should we do about it? For me, that's sort of the the urgent question of the book. And the question that I was asking myself is how how do you try and make the world into the sort of place that you would want your child to grow up in? And how do you prepare them for that world that maybe is going to be unfriendly to them? And most of all, how do you hold on to hope that it can get better? And how do you pass that on to your children? Because I do ultimately think of it as, as a hopeful book. I think about it as a book that is asking how we can hang on to all of those ideas that we want to keep, the things we're fighting for rather than just the things we're fighting against.
1: I said I wanted to talk a bit lighter. I want to talk about the uses of art in the novel, but first of all, I wanted to talk about poetry. And um, and at the beginning, there's an epigraph um, from the poet Anna Akhmatova. Um, Tell us something about who she was and why you chose her.
2: I discovered the work of Anna Akhmatova partway through writing the book, and it just felt so resonant with the story. She was a Russian poet. Uh, she was writing in the early 20th century, and she was very famous. There were stories that every house had a, a China figurine of her, not every house, but it was so common that you'd have a statue of this poet in your home. That's the level of fame she was at. And then Stalin came to power. And she was forbidden from doing her writing. Um, Her former husband and her son were both jailed as dissidents. And she was writing poems about this. And she would go to stand outside the prison where her son was being held in hopes of being able to see him and she was never allowed in. And so the epigraph is her talking to the other women who are outside this prison Hoping to be able to go in to see their loved ones inside and them asking her if she can tell their story and so that was that to me spoke to so much of what the book was about about how art can help us through extremely dark times and how there is such a value in telling the very specific stories of people and not letting those stories be forgotten. That's one of the questions that Margaret, the poet mother in the book, is wrestling with herself. And I wanted
1: to talk about storytelling in the novel. There's, the story is full of folk tales and one particularly great story about um, a young boy that, that draws cats. Tell us something about that story in particular, but also just in more general, the use of, the use of sort of folk tales in the novel.
2: Yeah, the story of, of the boy who, who painted cats um, was one that I remembered hearing from when I was a child about a boy, as you can imagine, who paints cats. And um, he ends up sort of going on this little adventure. And the story is told several times in several different versions throughout the book. It's one that I had heard, but when I went back and looked at what the story actually said, it, it wasn't exactly as I had remembered it. And I was really interested in the idea that we remember stories differently according to where we are in our lives, that they speak to us differently and they say different things to us depending on what we need to hear at the moment. And so there's quite a bit of storytelling in the book itself. Bird's mother tells him stories. Bird reads stories. Bird is looking for stories that have been removed from the libraries because of of these laws and because of the fear that, uh, you know, they might be seen as un-American. And part of the book is about the ways that we use stories to understand ourselves and make sense of our own lives. Are we the hero who's going on a quest? Are we on an adventure? Are we the villain? Are we the hero? Um, he's trying to figure that out as well.
1: And throughout the book, there are non violent protests that feature some form of art or some sort of happening or gathering. And again, while I don't necessarily want to talk about the specific things that happen in the novel because that might give key elements of it away, tell us about because a lot of these were influenced by real, real events in the past again. So tell us about some of the, um, the sort of forms of protest that you've used in the novel?
2: Yeah, I'm really interested in the idea of art as a form of protest or even just as a form of sort of raising awareness of something that's going on because I think those kinds of protests come at us sideways. They kind of bypass the rational parts of our brain that might skim over a news report or skim over an editorial telling us about what was going on. When you encounter it, as a form of art. So for example, um, a message that's been spray painted on the ground or um, a yarn bombing, which is when people put a big knitted or crocheted thing up in public as a surprise. Or here in the States, there have been several surprise bits of what I'd call protest art. Uh, Facing the, the bull on Wall Street, someone installed a little statue of a girl who's standing there kind of defiantly putting her hands on her hips and facing down the bull and it was it was a surprise to people and it got attention because it was so unexpected we didn't know who did it and it just appeared overnight and that was how i imagine protest working in this world is really through art as something that would take people by surprise and shake them out of their everyday routines and make them think a little bit because they'd be touched emotionally by what was happening maybe that would be a way in to changing their minds about what was going on politically
1: this novel being speculative fiction is uh, a slight departure from your two previous novels. And I wanted to talk about, first of all, why, why you wanted to tackle the subject matter in this mm-hmm. book through that form, um, but then also perhaps what other writers of that sort of thing were an influence.
2: Yeah, absolutely. When I started the novel, to be honest, I thought of it as a fairly realistic novel. I was thinking about a, a mother who was creative in some way and her son, and maybe what would happen if he didn't understand why she was so drawn to her creative work, and maybe even saw that creative work as a rival for him. And this was coming off of the heels of finishing my second book, Little Fires Everywhere. And I I thought this was going to be a pretty conventional mother-son story. And this was in October of 2016. And so almost immediately thereafter, while this story was still taking shape, the 2016 election happened we started to see the rise of the far right a lot of the issues that had been simmering under the surface kind of came right up to the front or people started saying that the quiet part out loud as as people sometimes say and because it felt like the world off the page was becoming a dystopia that all kind of came into the book as well it felt almost it felt almost wrong to write a story about people who in two years you know in in book time I knew their world was going to fall apart. And I thought, well, let me just imagine a couple of years into the future or maybe five minutes into the future, what the world might be like. And it was something new for me. It was something that I had to kind of learn how to do. But I realized that at heart, this was still a family story. It was still a book that was touching all of the things that I'd been interested in in my, my previous work. It was about parents and whether they and their children can understand each other. It was about what the role of art is. Can it do anything in the world? You know, Can it actually make a difference? And it was about whether stories can reach people, what the value of telling a story is. And so I had to go and look at some other authors who write, as you say, speculative fiction. So of course, Margaret Atwood and The Handmaid's Tale, but also books like The Power by Naomi Alderman and uh, Red Clocks by Lenny Zumas. And uh, going all the way back to Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, how did they build a world that felt different from ours and yet still had a human story in it? Because for me, that was, that was what the book had to be at heart.
1: The footage is off. Can I get you to read us a bit?
2: Sure. I'll read just a bit from the beginning of the book, bits that hopefully won't need too much explanation, but it'll give you a sense of, of the world that we're in and who the, the characters are. The letter arrives on a Friday Slit and resealed, with a sticker, of course, as all their letters are. Inspected for your safety. Packed. It had caused confusion at the post office, the clerk unfolding the paper inside, studying it, passing it up to his supervisor, then the boss. But eventually, it had been deemed harmless and sent on its way. No return address, only a New York, New York postmark, six days old. On the outside, his name, Bird. And because of this, he knows it is from his mother. He has not been Bird for a long time. We named you Noah after your father's father, his mother told him once. Bird was all your own doing. The word that, when he said it, felt like him. Something that did not belong on earth. A small, quick thing. An inquisitive chirp. A self that curled up at the edges. The school hadn't liked it. Bird is not a name, they'd said. His name is Noah. His kindergarten teacher, fuming. He won't answer when I call him. He only answers to Bird. Because his name is Bird, his mother said, he answers to Bird, so I suggest you call him that, birth certificate be damned. She'd taken a Sharpie to every handout that came home, crossing off Noah, writing Bird on the dotted line instead. That was his mother, formidable and ferocious when her child was in need. In the end, the school conceded, though after that, the teacher had written Bird in quotation marks, like a gangster's nickname. Dear Bird, please remember to have your mother sign your permission slip. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, Bird is respectful and studious, but needs to participate more fully in class. It wasn't until he was nine, after his mother left, that he became Noah. His father says it's for the best and won't let anyone call him Bird anymore. If anyone calls you that, he says, you correct them. You say, sorry, no, that's not my name. It was one of the many changes that took place after his mother left. A new apartment, a new school, a new job for his father, an entirely new life as if his father had wanted to transform them completely so that if his mother ever came back, she wouldn't even know how to find them. He'd passed his old kindergarten teacher on the street last year on his way home. Well, hello, Noah, she said. How are you this morning? And he could not tell whether it was smugness or pity in her voice. He's 12 now. He's been Noah for three years, but Noah still feels like one of those Halloween masks. Something rubbery and awkward he doesn't quite know how to wear. She'd left them. That was all his father would say. And then, getting down on his knees to look Bird in the eye, It's for the best. Forget about her. I'm not going anywhere. That's all you need to know. Back then, Bird hadn't known what she'd done. He only knew that for weeks he'd heard his parents' muffled voices in the kitchen long after he was supposed to be asleep. Usually it was the soothing murmur that lulled him to sleep in minutes, a sign that all was well. But lately, it had been a tug-of-war instead, first his father's voice, then his mother's, bracing itself, gritting its teeth. It wasn't until later that he learned the truth, hurled at him on the playground like a stone to the cheek. Your mom is a traitor. DJ Pierce, spitting on the ground beside Bird's sneakers. Everyone knew his mother was a person of Asian origin. Kung Pows, some kids called them. This was not news. You could see it in Bird's face if you looked. All the parts of him that weren't quite his father. Hints in the tilt of his cheekbones, the shape of his eyes. Being a PAO, the authorities reminded everyone, was not itself a crime. Pact is not about race, the president was always saying. It is about patriotism and mindset. But your mom started riots, DJ said. My parents said so. She was a danger to society, and that's why she ran away. His father had warned him about this. People will say all kinds of things, he told Bird. You just focus on school. You say, we have nothing to do with her. You say, she's not a part of my life anymore. He'd said it. We have nothing to do with her, my dad and me. She's not a part of my life anymore. Inside him, his heart tightened and creaked. On the blacktop, the wad of DJ's spit glistened and frothed.
1: So I've been talking to Celeste Ng. We've been talking about her new novel, Uh, Missing Hearts, which is out in the UK from Abacus Books. Celeste, thank you so much for telling me about it.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
2: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows
0: and movies will keep you streaming all month long.